we are entering probably a 50-year transition where this whole world is going to have to become digital. One day, ARPA, which is the defense agency in the US, has given us a lot of money to design a new network called the ARPANET. And this was the precursor of today's internet. This was going to be the game changer that the world needed. Today, we have the digital world. It's a period of massive disruption. It's going to affect our politics, our economics, our social life. It's going to affect technology. It's going to affect everything. I hope my legacy is leaving some thoughts about how to really take advantage of our digital world, which will be so different to the world that we grew up in. This is Siona TV. My name is Hendrik Dekkers. I'm here today with Roger Cameras, who is the International Research Director of uh, CIONET. A very warm welcome, Roger. Thank you very much, Henrik. Roger has 50 years of experience in our IT industry. He has worked as a Group Director of Butler Cox. He was the European President of SRI, Senior Partner at Ernst & Young, uh, and the Transformation Director at Fujitsu Services. He was also Managing Director of YPRO Consulting and is the Founder and Director of CIONET in the UK, where he is now the International Research Director. So Roger, in this conversation, we're going to take uh, a journey together through five decades and discuss how the digital world of today has been shaped. Are you ready? Yes, thank you, Henrik. <laughs> Always ready. Okay, let's uh, kick this off, uh, Roger. So let's go back to the 70s, to the roaring 70s. Uh, this was really the, the birth of the digital age. You were in your 20s and you graduated from, uh, from Cambridge. So let's go back to that time. What happened when you graduated from Cambridge and what did you graduate in? I graduated in electrical sciences, Henrik, um, uh -huh. having actually started my degree course in theoretical physics. But I realized mm -hmm. that I was not going to become the next Einstein. So the easy course mm -hmm. of action was to go for an engineering degree, which was a, mm -hmm. a much easier task than theoretical physics. And then you went to MIT. What, what brought you to MIT in the US? Well, that was a really critical decision point in my life. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'd had two years in industry uh, in the UK. And the big decision mm -hmm. was, should I go back to university? or should I plow on in the, uh, the big corporate life? Yep. Uh, but one day, uh, my professor walked into my little office and said, Roger, we have good news for you. Uh, ARPA, which is the defense agency in the US, has just given us a lot of money to design a new network called the ARPANET. And this mm -hmm. actually was the precursor of the, today's internet. And it was ideal. It was in per perfect harmony with what my aspirations were suggesting. This was going to be the game changer that the world needed. So ARPANET was the, like, the precursor of the internet. So tell us a little bit, what, what was it at the time? What was your involvement? What, what did you contribute to that project? So already uh, before the ARPA fellowship, Universities were communicating with each other using simple file transfer. They were sending emails and simple files between Stanford, MIT, Harvard, even Cambridge. Uh, and that was an academic network. What ARPA mm -hmm. saw in that network was the opportunity to build an infinitely expandable and indestructible network uh, that could be mm -hmm. obviously used for military purposes. So the, the, okay. the big push was to translate this small academic network into a major global network upon mm -hmm. which all sorts of traffic could run, uh, commercial, academic and military traffic. Now that was in 1974. We had to mm -hmm. wait nearly 20 years before the internet took off. 
And it was actually the discovery of the World Wide Web protocols in, I think it was 1969, uh, Sir Bernard Lee discovered those while he was at CERN, that really lifted the lid off this traditional network capability. Mm -hmm. uh, so my company, uh, Plessy at the time, was keen to have me back in the UK. Okay. Although mm -hmm. I was actually very attracted to jobs in the US. Uh, I was talking mm -hmm. to IBM particularly, and IBM said, we'd love to have you, Roger, but we aren't going to go through the whole green card, card episode. You've got to come back and work with us in the UK. So mm -hmm. 1976, I arrived back in the UK. So I arrived in Nottingham in the Midlands mm -hmm. in a 72-acre manufacturing site to meet with mm -hmm. a possible employer who is the chief executive of Plessy Telecommunications. Uh, mm -hmm. He was larger than life. He was an American who'd been recruited to save the whole division. It was going downhill rapidly and 15,000 jobs just in Nottingham were uh, in jeopardy. And so what did you do then, these, the, these years at Plassey then, in Nottingham? So, so as soon as I joined, I discovered that this chief executive had actually just signed a global manufacturing and distribution agreement with a small startup in Silicon Valley, actually in Cupertino. Mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. And what had happened there was four MBA graduates from Stanford had set up a small business to manufacture a fully digital electronic exchange for small to large uh, organizations. It was not a public exchange, mm -hmm. it was a private exchange. And he'd basically taken the license for every part of the world outside North America. And I was to be the global launch manager <laughs> for this product at the age of 26. <laughs> and at that time, Plessy was one of the top five manufacturers of telecom equipment in the world. We had mm -hmm. factories in Brazil, in Canada, in Portugal, in the UK, and in other parts of Europe. So this was a really big task. I was working on private switching systems that went into offices and factories compared to the big public switching systems that went into the public exchanges, we were able to accelerate the adoption of these digital private switches way in advance, like a decade mm -hmm. in advance of the big public switches, just because it was easier to install these, uh, much yep. less complex. So the market really took off for these mm -hmm. private branch exchanges uh, and we had lost something like 40 or 50% of our market share. By bringing the switch in from California, we completely regained our market share in the UK and elsewhere across the world. But what was mm -hmm. more interesting at the time was the fact that people were talking about the digital office and the telephone exchange being digital itself was seen to be the possible hub or conduit for all data information flowing through the office, not just through the mm -hmm. telephone, but computer to computer. So this really opened my eyes and the eyes of uh, my employer to the possibility that Plessy could move itself into what we call the office of the future, to become the primary hub for all data communications that was taking place in the office, as well as, of course, voice. So if we would uh, summarize the 70s for you, you were in your 20s. I understand you were still single then and 100% and focused on your career. Is that correct? Uh, that's entirely correct. Uh, but okay. as, as I mentioned before, the uh, chief executive was a very forward-looking American and he brought mm -hmm. a lot of the Silicon Valley mentality and capability to the company. Even to the point, and this is a very important point, we actually set up our own manufacturing site over a mile away from the main facilities. So we actually had a physical distance between us and the main site. And of course, what, mm -hmm. we, what, you, what we were doing there was we were going to manufacture digital technologies that would replace all those analog switching systems. And we reckoned that with 500 people at our new factory, 
we could produce more product than 15,000 people in the old analog world. And that was again a big sign that digital yeah. transformation was going to have a big effect on employment. Okay. Let's move to the 80s, and because the 80s were really where the IT industry uh, enjoyed an explosive growth, right? Uh, absolutely. Uh, and I was sitting in Nottingham thinking, how am I going to really take advantage of this monumental wave that's about to sweep over us? And yep. interestingly, while I was conducting this particular job, uh, the CEO called in a group of consultants. And the question at the time was, we've got a great product here. How do we become a leader, not just in telephony, but in digital communications? And what we referred mm -hmm. to at the time as the office of the future, the automated office. Okay. So that mm -hmm. actually gave me an opportunity to start to work part-time on a big consultancy assignment to say how could Plessy leverage itself into adjacent fields. And interestingly enough, one of our major partners and investors in Plessy was a company called ICL. It was the British computer company of the time. Yeah. Uh, and we, between Plessy and ICL, set up a joint venture to explore the convergence of computing and telecommunications. Uh, and that joint okay. venture went under the particular name of Pickle, Plessy ICL. <laughs> so I was actually okay. part of the Pickle, Pickle team. <laughs> and so that was a startup IT consulting uh, company uh, that worked both on the telco services part and, and on the IT consulting, was a mix of the two? So interestingly again uh, the two people who led that study in the UK one mm -hmm. was called George Cox and the other one was called mm -hmm. David Butler and at the time yep. they were working for a US company called Diebold and Diebold mm -hmm. was an interesting company in that it actually ran a consultancy division but also a research division where they sold research services to CIOs and mm -hmm. during the consulting uh, engagement, uh, David and George took me down to a pub and they said, Roger, we're about to spring out from Diebold. We can't stand John Diebold. He's killing us. Uh, we're going to start our own consulting firm in, the Euro in Europe and it's going to be called Butler Cox. Uh, consultancy was hardly uh, established actually at the beginning of the 80s. There were just a couple mm -hmm. of players. The big, cons uh, the big accounting firms had not even thought about uh, consulting in the IT space. Uh, so we were really first in uh, as expert-based okay. consultants. That was really our niche. Mm -hmm. We, we uh, felt that we were well qualified to help CIOs right across UK and then across the whole of Europe make their key decisions in uh, areas of uh, IT. Okay, let's, let's take that from the beginning. So when, yeah, sure. w how did it take off? You were number five. What was the first projects that you started working on? And what was the, the big breakthroughs that you had in your, in your years at uh, Butler Cox? Uh, the British Post Office has engaged mm -hmm. us to look at the impact of technology on our business over the next 15 years. That was from mm -hmm. 1980 to 1995. And Roger, he said, you're going to lead this project and undertake all the work. It was an extraordinary undertaking. Uh, basically, we had six months uh, and it included a complete tour of the US. I went to 22 different manufacturers and service companies across the US in that six months. I met with mm -hmm. the early uh, founders of MCI, uh, Texas Instruments, AT&T, Xerox, uh, a whole host of amazing companies to find out what was the future of the British Post Office, which by the way at the time, of course, included post and telecommunications. Of course, yeah. Um, so that was a dream job almost, no, a dream project to, um, to go around the world 
and see where the, the, the IT and digital is, is, is going to go and what the impact would be on, uh, on the British Post and, 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 and British Telco. So uh, to give you some feeling for how important this was, uh, while I was mm -hmm. in the States, someone mentioned a company called Delphi and a person called Jay Stoffer who had founded Delphi. And the rumor at the time was that Exxon had given them $50 million to develop some new technology, but no one knew what it was and Delphi was completely tight-lipped. So while I was in the States, I must have made 20 or 30 phone calls to Delphi and talked to the president. And what he actually mm -hmm. said to me was, he said, if you look at every company in the United States, they all have massive administrations. They have people uh, handling the telephones, they have people handling the paperwork. Uh, there's a moment now where we could really look at automation. And he said, the first thing I've actually done is I've designed a call center where people can take calls from the public and they can immediately input those into computer screens uh, and they can then um, uh, uh, assign people to take over uh, any actions. So this is the mm -hmm. first talk about a public call center that I'd ever heard of. And I went back to the British Post Office and I said, there's a character in San Francisco designing <laughs> public call centers. Would you be interested? And they said, yep. absolutely. Uh, they invited Jay over to talk to them. Mm -hmm. And they said, this is, so this is such a big step forward. We'd actually like to implement this call center in Bristol. So mm -hmm. BT actually set up a trial site in Bristol to uh, accept public calls. Of course, at the time, people said, so why would the public want to call this center? I mean, <laughs> for what reason? It just happened that B, uh, B, uh, uh, British Post Office at the time was just about to go private and mm -hmm. they needed a number for possible investors, the public, the retail public, to call. So suddenly this call center was overwhelmed with something like five million calls. Everyone wanted oh. to subscribe to the first public offering in the UK. Mm -hmm. It was a tremendous success. And it was not just uh, post office that went public, it was British Gas, British Airways, British, British, British Petroleum. All of these companies uh, advertised their, um, their shares and, and uh, subscribers had to ring this post office uh, call center in Bristol. So that was really... So you were, in yeah, that was quite something. You were instrumental in implementing the first public call center for, for BT, basically, for the, for the uh, uh, BT going public. Uh, absolutely. And this was, again, the beginning of a whole new industrial wave. Because actually, at mm -hmm. the time, we in the UK were losing a lot of our manufacturing. Uh, there were a lot mm -hmm. of people who were being made redundant in different parts of the country, uh, leaving the factories, what were they going to do? And the simple answer was, go into call centers. And so the first center in Bristol actually was the genesis of a whole wave of call centers, which I think today would have three to four million people uh, working in public call centers in the UK. Okay, so Roger, what was, the, um, what was the big conclusion of the uh, study that you did for the British uh, Post Office? We uh, presented the main board and we forecast that mm -hmm. they would have to split <coughs> post and telecommunications and that they would need to privatize the telecommunications company. That was the first major mm -hmm. recommendation. We then said that the telecoms company itself would be competing not just with other global teleco, telco operators, but actually with companies like IBM, Xerox, and, and uh, AT&T. Uh, that was another massive uh, blow to the, uh, the management. The third area we said was data will become the main traffic source in the future uh, within 15 years, rather mm -hmm. than voice. 
So they all looked in total disbelief and they said, we don't believe you. <laughs> You're completely wrong. <laughs> he said, voice will always dominate. We're an island. The UK will always be uh, its, own, its own domain. Uh, we're happy as we are. Uh, five years later, they publicly apologized for being so wrong. So they, they didn't take your advice then? Nope, they, they had no idea what was coming down the line. Good, let's talk about the, the next big project that you did with, uh, when you worked at uh, Butler Cox. That was for the city, if I am uh, uh, well informed, right? Yes, of course. So uh, at the time, Margaret Thatcher was the Prime Minister and she was on course to privatize mm -hmm. anything that moved, uh, including the city. Uh, mm -hmm. We went through what we called the Big Bang, which enabled banks to buy up stockbrokers. Uh, up till that time, stockbrokers mm -hmm. had been very much private partnerships. Uh, and suddenly the big banks came in to buy them up. In particular, it was the US banks. It was the Goldman Sachs, the Citigroups, mm -hmm. uh, etc., who came over and spent big money buying these companies uh, up. What I suddenly realized at that time was that the traditional city office buildings would no longer accommodate modern IT. And I actually went on a crusade. I mm -hmm. went to all the architects of the day to say, you are not going to be able to accommodate all the wiring and technology that's coming into effect uh, as we really got into the computing age. And very few of them even began to believe me. Exciting times. Another uh, interesting project you uh, worked on uh, when at uh, Butler Cox Watcher was for Unilever. Can you uh, talk about that? Of course. So we were actually approached by the CIO at Unilever to look at their global telecommunications network, which at the time okay. was a private network uh, that had been built by Unilever to serve all their mm -hmm. national subsidiaries across the world and provide essentially desk-to-desk -desk, uh, communication as well as data communication. Yeah. And the question that was asked at the time was, uh, we're working with old technology, we need to refresh the technology, uh, is there a business case to do this? So I went to all the divisions, I looked at all the economics, I came back and I said, yes, there's a very strong case uh, to replace all the technology, it's going to save costs, etc. and give a much better service. Uh, we then took this to the main board and the main board actually said we are a soap and detergents company. Why should we be <laughs> investing in new technologies? Isn't there someone out there who could do this for us? Well that was a really interesting question in the early 80s and actually there was no one out there who was actually doing what we today call outsourcing. Uh, we went to yep. BT and they said well, we've no idea what, <laughs> what they need. Uh, we went to ICL, uh, the British computer company, and they said, we don't do that sort of thing. We sell computers. Uh, we also found a little company uh, that had a small office in London called EDS. And they said, oh yes, <laughs> small we do that. We do it big time in the States. We'd love to come into Europe and do it in Europe. So guess what? Uh, the board actually appointed EDS. We, we did a, um, a quick evaluation and found that they were perfectly adequate. And they took on not just the telecommunication network, the whole of IT operations, data centers, networks, IT support right across the world. It was one of the first mega uh, outsourcing contracts in Europe. Uh, and what was quite interesting was that the whole CIO team, including the CIO, was transferred to EDS. I don't think that was... Even it, the CIO and his team, wow. <laughs> even the CIO. And I don't think that was quite what he wanted to do. Uh, he didn't no, last there very long. That was probably not a good idea, no. No, 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 no. That was not a good idea. That's not what, what we've learned now after these decades of outsourcing. That's not best practices, I would, uh, I would think, right? Exactly. In fact, it was a complete and unmitigated disaster. I think they, uh, EDS changed their project manager three times in the first six months. Uh, it was a very tough, tough transition. Mm -hmm. But eventually they got it right, as they always did. And interestingly, British yep. Telecom took over after that. After 10 years, BT won the contract. So that was really the beginning of the outsourcing era. And uh, it was fascinating to play 
uh, a defining role at that time. Mm -hmm. Another big area that you did consulting around was around SAP and you did that for a, a huge company in Germany. Can you tell us about that? Yes, indeed. So uh, by that time, Butlercox had actually uh, established itself in a number of countries around Europe, including Germany. Uh, and mm -hmm. we received an invitation to uh, bid for a piece of very big piece of strategic work uh, to look at the whole IT organization worldwide for Henkel. Uh, and the question was from the main board, uh, is this a suitable IT structure? Uh, and are we getting value for money? What we found in the initial stages was that all 70 different national organizations within Henkel across the world had their own IT operations, their own IT wow. management, their own <laughs> IT software, their own IT hardware. Uh, in Germany, which was the biggest national operation, they were SAP users, and this was 89. It's uh, one of the first major SAP users, but nowhere else in the world were they using SAP. So uh, by the end of that contract, I had to go to the main board and to tell them that the whole organization was fundamentally at odds with their plans to become global product brands and global product divisions. Uh, instead of being national organization focused, they needed to be global, uh, global divisions. And the IT just wouldn't support that. So the uh, CEO at the time, Professor Seeler, who was an impressive character, he was on the main board of IBM in Armonk, <laughs> wow. looked quite distressed. And he said, Roger, how long would it take to fix this? And I looked at him straight in the eyes and I said, it could take as long as five years. And everyone on the board looked absolutely uh, dumbfounded. In reality, it took 20 years to transition <laughs> those 70 different national organizations to a single integrated IT operation worldwide to collapse all the hardware, all the software into one SAP environment with just two major data centers. And that wasn't the hard part. The hard part actually was consolidating all that data that described each of their main brands. Every country had different data structures. All those structures yeah. had to be realigned to a single global data structure. It was a massive job and I was actually advising De Henkel for 20 years. I saw off four CEOs and five CIOs in that time. But they were a tremendous client and I really enjoyed that experience. It was a fundamental change program, like of which I've never been involved before. Okay, so lovely years, the, um, um, the 80s. Let's move to the next decade. Uh, let's move to the 90s. And um, 90s are really the and it's the area of hyperconnectivity, and it's the area also of the re-engineering, the BPRs and the ERPs and so on that, that, that exploded uh, really in the 90s. So what's your view on the 90s and where did you move after uh, Butler Cox? Sure, so the 90s was really interesting. Uh, I think Europe as a whole, but certainly the UK had been through a, a, a massive financial crisis at the end of the 80s, early 90s. Uh, the economies were in, uh, uh, in uh, rapid decline, but equally the mm -hmm. IT industry had suddenly come out of a vast growth spurt, was beginning to mature. We were talking about mm -hmm. three to 4% growth rates in the IT industry. Uh, we'd been mm -hmm. used to 30 to 40% growth rates in the 80s. And that was a really tough time. I remember being on the board of Butler Cox as a public company. We were looking at uh, a, a, a really terrible picture. I mean, the revenues are falling through the floor, costs were high. Uh, we had to take very decisive action in the early 90s. But the next interesting uh, episode in that period was uh, an approach um, by the Stanford Research Institute to myself personally. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I'd come largely to 
the end of my time at Butler Cox, we'd gone public, we'd done all the necessary. And SRI, uh, in, based in California, uh, a very prestigious not-for-profit institute, was looking to repair its European operations, which had seemed to okay. disappear into the dust. Uh, and I actually met with the president of SRI and he said, look, Roger, either we close the whole of Europe down or we completely reinvent it. And of course, mm -hmm. being the maverick entrepreneur that I am, <laughs> I said, uh, that's just a perfect opportunity. And the reason for that was, firstly, the brand was still intact. SRI still had a big brand. We were the company that actually patented the mouse in 1969 invented the first oh. household detergent. There were a lot of firsts there. <laughs> so I thought, wouldn't this be wonderful to grab hold of a world-class brand and reinvent the business? And I think the president at the time understood that if I could reinvent the business in Europe and create a different uh, set of services, he could reinstate those services back into the United States. So essentially, mm -hmm. we were going to be a lab, an incubator for the, the, the main company. Uh, to help me in this endeavour, uh, the CEO of ICL approached our company in London and he said, mm -hmm. we've actually just finished a major study with MIT where Michael, Porter, uh, Michael Hammer and Jim Champy were the leaders of the study and they came up with mm -hmm. the concept of re-engineering, uh, re-engineering the processes of the organisation. And he said, we've had yep. a lot of value from that study, but we think we should go further. We're really interested in the impact of connectivity, not just within organizations and the processes that take place in organizations, but right across the whole economic uh, landscape. How will companies of the future interact together using the internet? And he said, we want to do another major study uh, with world partners called Business in the Third Millennium. Now this was early 90s, and of course it was a brilliant time. Uh, the internet had just been essentially invented, Tim Berners-Lee uh, with the World Wide Web, uh, and we could see the potential of what the web could do and the whole internet could do to commerce in general. So we set about this task, uh, recruited 12 global companies, and for five years, we went on a remarkable journey in wow. Asia, in Europe, and in the States. We had Fujitsu and NTT in Japan. We had Chevron, uh, US Postal Service in the States. We had Barclays and BP in the UK, and a number of other major corporates. Uh, and getting together in those days uh, required us to have meetings in different parts of the world, uh, and we basically developed scenarios that would take us into the 21st century on the premise that the internet would change everything. Uh, that was a terrific study and one that I, I think imagine. even today uh, many lessons have been learned. So Roger, what was the other major project that you, um, that you are proud of when you worked at uh, SRI? Yes, so we were approached by British Telecom uh, with a little sort of flashback to my early days in the British Post Office, advising them that, that data would become the main thoroughfare of their networks. So they came to us and mm -hmm. they said, um, we're writing a business plan for third generation mobile. Uh, this is an important mm -hmm. step forward because 3, 3G will accommodate high-speed data for the first time. We move beyond mm -hmm. simple texting and messaging to full uh, video quality uh, over, the, over the telephone. Now, this was 1997, yep. 10 years before Apple launched its iPhone. So uh, the idea that you could use a phone for any, a mobile phone for anything other than voice was already uh, way out of sight. So we set about mm -hmm. this project by looking at the needs of different industries for remote communication. We talked to Sony, we talked to American Express, to British Airways, to a whole range of industries. And what became apparent to us was that data over the telephone instrument had enormous potential. 
And we actually came up mm -hmm. with three different opportunity areas which BT required us to actually plug revenue forecasts into. The first one uh, today would be obvious, but it wasn't then. It was called the Anywhere Office. That you could actually use mm -hmm. a PC and remotely communicate anywhere, uh, anytime around the country uh, using some form of uh, uh, 3G connection. That was uh, yep. obviously an important revenue earner. The second one was more interesting. We called it Personal World. And what that said was mm -hmm. from my mobile phone, I can access photos of my family, my music, uh, videos of all kinds, and I can even play games. Again, something that today we would take as absolutely normal. It's called streaming, uh, but at that time, yep. no one had ever heard of it. Uh, and the third one was even more interesting. We called it Capture and Correspond. And what we said there was, I could be at a football match and I could use my, uh, my, my telephone to actually video the match and communicate it to people who were unable to be at the match or in other countries. Uh, we could share experiences. Uh, that's the basis on which Facebook emerged. So if you look at which was only which was only seven eight years later that Ex that they basically emerged exactly so we were really laying the foundation stones for that mobile mm -hmm. economy which of course today is absolutely massive uh, the problem at the time was yep. that there were no terminals uh, <laughs> the ideas were good the the uh, yep. cha transmission channels were there the three G but no one could use them. So slowly but surely, the uh, uh, people like at that time, Sony, Ericsson, Nokia, were beginning to experiment with data over, over the mobile phone. And of course, uh, today we know Samsung and Apple dominate that whole marketplace. Yeah, there was, there was the iPhone and Android that, that uh, took that market and completely changed that. The only problem with our business plan when we presented it to the board of mm -hmm. BT was we didn't include a license fee. We pretty, much, we pretty much demonstrated that there was sufficient revenue to cover the cost of the network, uh, which had to be completely uh, replaced, but we didn't include the license mm -hmm. fee. Government actually imposed a license fee on all operators, which cost Operator. individual yeah. operators five Fortune. billion pounds each. Now that would have sunk any yeah. business plan, but fortunately we were <laughs> unaware of the license fee at the time and BT went screaming ahead to uh, launch its 3G. Okay, so that was your time at SRI. Yes. And after SRI, you, um, you went and worked for Ernst & Young. Why did you make that switch and, why was the, and what was the exciting work that you did there? So I'd spent five years at SRI and I remember our uh, mm -hmm. uh, chairman saying to me, Roger, you look old and tired. <laughs> it had been a <laughs> tough, hard road to revitalize Europe. Uh, we'd made some great successes, but equally it had been a, it's been a, uh, a real strain on me personally. Uh, and incidentally, I'd mm -hmm. spent a week every month in San Francisco, California, throughout five years. That was 60 trips. Mm -hmm. And when I came back to the office, I remember the office people were saying, Roger's always in a bad tempo <laughs> when he's jet lagged. <laughs> uh, so I spent literally half my life jet lagged. Uh, so anyway, uh, Ernst Young came along. They clearly had sensed that e-commerce was really beginning to take root amongst their major clients. Everyone was asking mm -hmm. for expertise on e-commerce. Uh, Clearly, we just completed a major study called Business in the Third Millennium uh, that looked at the whole impact of connectivity on commerce itself. Uh, and I suppose at that time, I could say I was a real global expert in this subject. Uh, at least I could spell the word. So um, the partners <laughs> at uh, EY welcomed me through the front door and said, right, you're, you're our guru. Go out and uh, talk to our major clients. And they all wanted to talk not just in the UK, but all over the world. So I was talking to yeah. uh, Coca-Cola, I was talking to Eli Lilly, uh, American Express, British Petroleum, Nokia, uh, global companies, all of whom had recognized that this 
e-commerce development was going to fundamentally change their business models. And I remember main boards were saying, this is going to be a fundamental transformation of our business. That was in the late 90s. Yep. And not only that, EY had queues of people outside the street uh, wanting us to write their business plans and raise the money for their dot-com startups, uh, yep. one of which was Amazon. Now, that was actually taking place in California and Seattle. Uh, we had some fantastic uh, audit clients out there, but we had the same mm -hmm. numbers over here. Uh, so my task was both to serve the startups and to validate their business plans, but equally to focus on those big uh, global companies who were willing to pay us enormous fees uh, to uh, point them in the right direction uh, for the future. Let's move to the next millennium and let's uh, move to the years 2000, also known as the noughties. And that is basically the area where uh, the Internet exploded, right? The uh, everything was possible and, and so on and so on. So what was your, your um, what were you doing in the in, in the noughties? How naughty were you in the noughties? I was very <laughs> naughty. <laughs> um, <laughs> I had a vision, uh, and the vision actually emerged from the business in the third millennium study uh, that corporates would fundamentally change their whole ways of working. Uh, and whilst mm -hmm. at EY, I got to meet with many of the global account managers of the really big corporates like Procter & Gamble, like mm -hmm. Coca-Cola. And I actually persuaded the account managers to bring the heads of e-commerce to a meeting in Atlanta, Georgia, hosted by Coca-Cola, where the intention was to say, how could the internet change these business models? And in particular, at the time, all these companies were engaged in uh, uh, e-marketplaces for procurement. There was lots of activity yep. in procurement. How can the oil companies or the consumer products companies consolidate all their purchasing power through an internet marketplace. Uh, and that really intrigued me. And I'd actually done some really formative work with BP on whether that was a goer or not. But what I thought was, if you can do it for procurement, why can't you do it for HR? Why can't you do it for CRM? Why can't you do it for finance? So I got all these 12 companies yep. in a room in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, and I said, look, much of what you do today is non-core, it's back office stuff. We could actually see this being pushed onto internet platforms that would essentially take the activities out of your organization, but actually give you all sorts of commercial benefit and advantage. What I was actually talking about was software as a service. But of course, no one had heard mm -hmm. about software as a service. So I said, actually, what I'm thinking of here is internet joint ventures where you pool your HR capabilities, your finance capabilities, your CRM capabilities into a common internet marketplace. And so that was in the year 2000. Uh, it was really anticipating the emergence of SaaS. The problem with the model yep. at the time was every company operated differently. So even in e-procurement, mm -hmm. The idea of being able to procure everything through a single marketplace required common processes, common data, uh, and most organizations just weren't able to manage their transition. So I was actually talking about a, a fascinating future, but an impractical future at the time. Uh, it wasn't web-based. Uh, actually, by, by having brought these people together, uh, there were some people in the room who actually did start to experiment with common platforms. Uh, Procter & Gamble and HP actually formed a joint venture to outsource collectively their, their HR uh, together. So this was the very early stages. But what was most interesting to me was the notion that actually there was in the future a, a totally new digital landscape. And I wrote a book in 2003 called The Atomic Corporation, where I literally challenged organizations. I said, what would happen if you removed all that back office? 
you removed HR, you removed finance, you removed all the functions, what would be your core competence? And most of these organizations couldn't respond. Uh, the bank said, no, we're, we're in production, we're in, uh, uh, we're in uh, product innovation, we're retailers, we're everything. And I said, you can't be all of those, th all of those things. You've got to actually focus on mm -hmm. one key competency. And that message has actually stayed with us uh, up till the present day. Uh, in fact, even more pertinent today than it was uh, 20 years ago. Okay, super. One of the major things you did in your professional life, uh, Roger, was at Fujitsu. Can you, um, can you tell us about that? What, uh, because that was a, a, a major accomplishment, I think, what you, what you did with that company in Europe. Certainly. So actually, my time at EY brought me into many different situations, uh, most of which were consulting projects for CIOs. Uh, and at that time, uh, National Grid Transco in the UK had just merged together. And the CIO called us in and said, I've just got two major IT departments, I have to merge them, how do I reorganize? Uh, the particular twist of this story was that that CIO had never had any IT experience, he had been the head of strategy. So uh, okay. I immediately interviewed all the different heads of the IT groups that he'd inherited and I came back mm -hmm. with the dismal news that I would not have given a single one of them a second interview if I was <laughs> looking to employ them. Uh, that depressed the life out of him. Uh, I said, there's only one other way to approach this, outsource the lot. <laughs> so we actually uh, uh, proposed a full outsourcing contract to 15 of the world's largest IT vendors. From IBM and Accenture mm -hmm. to Fujitsu and Capgemini, we invited them all to come along and propose how they would outsource the whole of IT operations for what was our major uh, national utility that managed oil, uh, uh, all our energy uh, networks. So wow. A big job. Mm -hmm. uh, and interestingly, Fujitsu was an incumbent in the organization. It had been with Transco for probably 20 or 30 years. So clearly the CEO of Fujitsu in Europe wanted to win that business. It was literally yeah. hundreds of millions of pounds of new business. Uh, Having listened to all the different suppliers, I had to go to the CEO of Fujitsu with the bad news. I said, you've got all the capability to win this. You guys have got really deep-seated technology and operational experience, but you can't tell the story. I said, IBM has just acquired PwC, Accenture full of bright, bushy-tailed <laughs> consultants. These guys are coming in with terrific stories. Uh, certainly IBM had some of the real depth of capability and the CEO actually admitted to me he said I've just taken over I was the head of EDS uh, and I've just come in to essentially bail out this company we're we're losing a lot of money uh, essentially Fujitsu had taken over ICL uh, the the situation was not good so the real task at the time was to persuade one of our major prospects that Fujitsu was a genuine alternative to the mainstream IBM, Accenture, HP crowd. Uh, and I did this through a very good uh, relationship with the CIO of BP. I literally took him to Japan and I showed him Toyota. And I said, John, Toyota has just become the world's number one automotive manufacturer because they've adopted lean manufacture way ahead of Ford or General oh. Motors. I said, mm -hmm. we at Fujitsu are going to apply lean thinking to IT services, and we will become the number one IT company in the world. In fact, we were already number three in revenue terms. But he was very intrigued by what this could mean. And in simple terms, I said, look, if you give us Europe, we'll halve the costs of IT operations right across Europe within three years by applying lean thinking. Guess what? We got the contract. <laughs> uh, we were coached to win. Uh, IBM said afterwards, they said, Roger, we never saw you coming. <laughs> we, you cheated. Uh, but we actually won the contract. And by doing so, we forced Fujitsu in Europe 
to really rethink their own operating model. We actually had to create a greenfield site in, uh, in Portugal to uh, actually deliver lean services. It was pretty much impossible to embed lean thinking into traditional uh, operation centers across Europe. We had to start from scratch. And in fact, Harvard Business Review published an article on this particular experience at Fujitsu uh, that mentioned the role of the corporate center in actually affecting transformation. They said, this is, this is a short-lived episode. Once you've affected the transformation, get out of the way. <laughs> so I got out of the way. I went to Wipro, a completely different environment. I mean, Fujitsu, of mm -hmm. course, is a Japanese company. They think in 50-year <laughs> horizon spans. Uh, Wipro was in the moment an amazingly energetic company, absolutely amazing, uh, but totally different culture, mm -hmm. very Indian culture, uh, very transactional, uh, very here and now. Uh, so I enjoyed that period, uh, but I uh, and, and one of the most interesting episodes, by the way, was uh, working with Shell. The CIO of Shell, Alan Matula at the time, said to us, uh, you do very good business with Shell, about $150 million a year, but purely in the application development and management area, what we call Adam. Why have you guys never sought to do business elsewhere? And he said, Roger, he said, I'm going to give you 90 days to go and interview my top line executives, 40 of them around the world, and tell me two things. One, what is your strategic challenge in IT? And by the way, they spend $5 billion a year on technology. What's our strategic challenge? And number two, where do you think Wipro would be capable of helping us outside your traditional area, the Adam area? Mm -hmm. uh, so we had 90 days. We came back and we said, there's 10 strategic opportunities. We occupy one. Uh, the second one would be cloud. And that, again, is 10 years away from us now. Uh, they were just about to recompete their global IT infrastructures. And their question was, why should we go to the traditional outsources when we could now go to Azure, uh, AWS, Google uh, for cloud services? It was a terrific question mm -hmm. at the time. When we talked to AWS, they said, we'd love to have you, Shell, but you're far too complex for us. We're doing fabulously well with small businesses. Uh, we don't need all the complexities of a big global corporation. Uh, how different they would be today. <laughs> they grab at that opportunity. Yeah, they still had to grow up. Yeah. They had to grow they up. They still didn't have the maturity to sell, uh, to, to service big, big corporates like that. And that's what you've been doing for the last 10 years. Eh? So in the, in the 2000 years, 2010, which we call the Tensies, Yes. Uh, in, this, uh, in these years, this is really, I think, where IT has reached maturity Yes. Uh, and where companies are going through digital transformation because there's a lot of new technology out there that, that, that supports that and that allows organizations to innovate on an, an, an amazing scale and, and, and level, right? True. Uh, and in fact, the most interesting of which in recent years was to undertake a study for Airbus on the convergence mm -hmm. of 5G mobile technology with low orbit satellite networks. Now, low orbit mm -hmm. satellite networks have the capability of providing 5G connectivity anywhere in the world. And of course, wow. uh, SpaceX, uh, uh, OneWeb and others are on this one right now, but you have to launch thousands of satellites to cover the world. Uh, and the UK has actually co-invested in OneWeb uh, as, its, uh, as its new satellite network. So we looked at mm -hmm. all the different possible application areas and concluded that that combination of 5G and low orbit satellite is going to be a game changer in this new digital world. Uh, and already uh, efforts are being made to start commercializing that combination of networks. Yeah, like 3G has, has uh, allowed many new um, capabilities and, and allowed the iPhone and, and Android and so the, uh, um, to explode 
5G and, and low orbit is going to be massive in, in so many different domains, in VR and, and AR, and we, we can't really imagine what's coming at us, I guess, right? I think so. And if you look at where the UK is strong, it's strong in services, mm -hmm. particularly in education, mm -hmm. legal, engineering, consulting services, all of which can be delivered through high quality uh, remote communications. So as you rightly say, yep. uh, augmented reality and virtual reality are going to be a main thrust in the next 10 years. Uh, essentially, we can be in two places at once. Uh, and already just this year, Zoom has taken off. It's really demonstrated how we can work in a totally international and global way without having to travel. Uh, and I think the, the 5G LEO satellite combination upgrades this by a factor of 10. So Roger, for the last, for the last couple of years, you have started together with, uh, with our friend Sean Sionet in the UK, and, and you have done uh, a number of highly in interesting studies within the CIO community. So tell us a little bit, what is your attraction to be active in the CIO world, because it's, it's your world, but in the CIO community, and what are the studies that you focused on for the last couple of years? Yes, uh, two, two catalysts here. The first one, of course, is that if you look at the UK stock market and productivity mm -hmm. levels over the last two decades since the dot-com revolution, we've been totally static. We have no Facebooks, we have no Amazons, we have no Netflix and we have no Salesforce. Mm -hmm. uh, we rely on traditional industry sectors like mining, banking, oil, energy. Uh, so the first question, I think, when we looked at the UK and I think more broadly across Europe is, how can big corporates re-engineer and re, uh, redesign themselves to become genuine digital leaders? Because we have none of those right mm -hmm. now. Uh, and, and the second catalyst actually was we had formed a very influential advisory board in the UK of top CIOs. People like Charlie Forte, who would actually be my client at VP, is now the CIO of uh, MOD, Ministry of Defence. Uh, Phil Jordan of Sainsbury and um, uh, Cindy Hoots, who's now the global head of IT for AstraZeneca. And they were all thinking that innovation was just not taking pay, place at the pace that it needed to take place in these big corporates. Uh, so how could we re-energize innovation? Um, we did a study last year, prompted by the advisory board, to look at innovation. And we came back with the view, it just isn't working. Despite all the great hype and all the money that the government seemed to be spending on innovation, it's not coming through in terms of equity value, growth, or productivity growth. Uh, it's the same old story with computers. You see computers everywhere except in the uh, bottom line. Uh, so the question this year was, how could we collectively accelerate innovation in the UK? And we brought together 40 organisations under Salesforce's sponsorship in the Salesforce Tower in London in February, just before the pandemic, had a great meeting yep identified six key areas where innovation should take place. Uh, one was consumer uh, customer centricity, the other was future of work. If I, if I look at, I mean, we've talked about the five last decades here, and if I would try to summarize, your work has been very, very international, isn't it? I mean, you worked in the UK, in the US, for Japanese companies, for Indian companies, for European companies. You lived in Europe. Uh, that's, I mean, you're really a global citizen. And your focus has been all the time on, 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 on technology and how to use that technology uh, for the better. I mean, you were involved in the first modems in the first switches, in the first call centers, in ERP, in cloud, in 3G, in 5G. And, and, and your focus has really been on both on consulting, but also a lot on research. So research and consulting in technologies on an international level has really been the core, I would say, of your professional career. So with that, how would you look, uh, Roger, at the future? I mean, we're now, 
2020 going into 2021. Uh, so where do you see the next 10 years, the next 100 years going with the looking with the experience and the, the strategic views and visions that you have? Where do you see the digital world moving in the next decades? So I think in the 90s, we identified hyperconnectivity as the driving force of the mm -hmm. digital world. This was going to change the way business was conducted and indeed really change the way we lived our lives. Uh, I think as we go yep. into the 2020s and beyond, it's hyper-personalization, which is going to change mm -hmm. our industry. It's going to change the way we live our lives. Uh, and hyper-personalization means that we can collect so much data about each individual, we can begin to understand every aspect of their lifestyles, what their aspirations are, what their challenges are. Uh, and as a supply industry, we can start to customize uh, our offers in a way that's way beyond the uh, advertising uh, type of uh, approach. We're, we're really mm -hmm. going to be able to tailor uh, our services, whether they're banking, retailing, entertainment, education, uh, financial services, to meet the individual needs of the consumer. Uh, that's a really interesting challenge because actually it looks at our personal data as the real source of value in this new economy. And we predicted that back in the 90s in our business in the third millennium. We said it's actually your personal data that is the most valuable asset in the new economy. And you have to ask yourself, when you look at the incredible valuations of Amazon, Google, Facebook, what are those valuations based on? It's my personal data. They've taken my personal data and they're using it for their purposes. I think what we're going to see in the next decade or two is that we as individuals will want that personal data back. We actually will want to monetize our own personal data. And I think the fascinating interplay that will take place in the next decade or two is how we manage and monetize our personal data and what benefits that will bring us. Because individually, we all have very different aspirations. Whether it's, whether it's the way we entertain ourselves, the way we socialize, the way we plan our finances, we're all different. Uh, and it's actually recognizing those differences and being informed about what those differences could mean in terms of choices and opportunities that will be the real source of value in the new economy. It won't be shipping goods. It's all about the value of our personal data and how we monetize. Mm -hmm. How do you look at the, I mean, we have a number of really big dominant players in the market. You just mentioned them, the Apples and the Amazons and the Microsofts and, and the Googles and so on. How do you see this play out? Because they have become very, very dominant. Yeah, and it, it's a real concern to me. I actually liken this to the, mm -hmm. the sailors who set out from England, Spain, Portugal to conquer the new world. It was the Spanish, the Portuguese, the British who discovered land on the other side of the Atlantic. And guess what? They went in there and they plundered it. They took everything that they could, could take <laughs> home with them, all the gold, all the tobacco, all the potatoes. Uh, and they, they also spread all their viruses, which more or less wiped out <laughs> the local populations. So it wasn't really a particularly beneficial uh, situation for the local inhabitants. Uh, what I see with the big uh, digital natives is they are doing the same thing they're occupying the digital world, not the new world of the Americas, but the digital world. They've basically colonized it already. They've taken ownership of it, of it mm -hmm. and they're plundering it to every, however they might plunder it. They're taking all the data and they're uh, using it for their own benefit. So instead of taking gold out of, uh, out of the South Americas, they're taking data out of the digital, uh, digital world. So I do see this as a, mm -hmm. a real concern for the future. You know, how do we continue to colonize the digital world? Because we must do that, uh, but do it in a more equitable way. Uh, I'm very concerned mm -hmm. about the power of Amazon, of the power of Google. Uh, they are natural monopolies. Uh, they're not going to give anyone breathing space. 
and they're going to acquire any company that looks half competitive to them. So I, I really do think that the world has got to come to grips yep. with this uh, situation. Uh, it's not impossible, but it's going to take some time. Yeah, and it's starting now. I mean, uh, um, uh, Facebook maybe needs to split off uh, Instagram and WhatsApp, and so there's, yeah, that's, uh, it's going to be interesting uh, to follow on that. So let's round up this, this wonderful conversation here, Roger. And so, but the last question, my last question to you, what is really the legacy that you wish to, uh, to leave behind? I mean, you're going to be around for the next 30 years, of course, but what is the legacy that you want uh, to leave behind? I hope I've actually created sufficient uh, frameworks and, 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 and thoughts that will help guide people in these times of uncertainty. Mm -hmm. I think we are entering probably a 50-year transition where this whole world is going to have to become digital. It's like the European mm -hmm. Renaissance. You know, when, when the Europe, European Renaissance happened in the 1400s, 1500s, life changed out of all uh, imagination. And I think we're going to go through the same mega changes. We've only just started. And I hope my legacy mm -hmm. is leaving some thoughts about how to best uh, exploit the new opportunities, how to really take advantage of a, a digital world which will be so different to the world that we grew up in. Yeah, and which is the, the cool thing, of course, we can't imagine where we're going to be because of this digital revolution that, that is accelerating every year faster and faster. We can't imagine where we're going to be in 10, 20, 50, let, us, let alone in 100 years. That's the, the fascinating thing about the world that we live in, of course. Yeah, I think the, the, the important point really here is to recognize that we're in transition. So uh, I worked mm -hmm. with a remarkable futurist called Watts Wacker, and he wrote a book called The 500-Year Delta. And his thesis was that every 500 years, there is a massive transition, a massive disruption. Uh, and you have yeah. to go back 500 years to the European Renaissance. Today, we have the digital world. It's a m period of massive disruption. And I think the only thing one can do is to have people appreciate how fundamental this is going to be. It's going to affect our politics, our economics, our social life. It's going to affect technology. It's going to affect everything. Uh, and when you get profound change taking place in all those four dimensions, you really have to understand you're in for a big transition. And then it's back to change management. How do you even cope with, at a personal level, or national or global level, the sort of fundamental changes that will inevitably arise. Okay, and on that note, Roger, I would like to thank you for your time and for sharing all your wisdom, your experiences, um, the, 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 the vision that you have, the strategies that you've uh, lived through. So thank you for your time. I really, really appreciate uh, appreciated this, uh, this interview. Thank you. Thank you very much, Henrik. It's been a pleasure.